Hello and welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Works, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works editor in chief, and I'm joined today by Rene Vangustin, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. Today we'll take a look at a major global microchip deal that China appears to have scuttled. We'll also look at a lighter story that means big business, namely the China bubble tea craze and a move by one of its leaders to Europe. Here we're talking about the story of a company called Haiti. We'll start with chips, in this case, a planned merger between global powerhouse Intel and an Israeli company called Tower Semiconductor. Intel announced its plan to buy Tower last year in a deal worth more than $5 billion. The sale got clearance from most major markets, but China was a notable exception. In this case, China didn't actually nix the deal, but rather they simply failed to approve it. Intel and Tower apparently gave up on waiting and announced last week that they were formally scrapping the merger. So most outsiders said Intel and Tower made their decision due to failure to get Chinese approval. Can you explain to us one, why China's approval is even necessary since neither company is from China, and two, why everyone, including Intel, interpreted China's failure to announce its approval of the deal as an actual veto, since uh, after all, China didn't actually say no. Well, what's in a word? <laughs> or, or lack of words. Yeah, why, why do you need words when, when you can do without? Why was China's approval necessary? Well, if you look at all these mergers that are happening on a global basis, um, lots of countries end up having to approve those deals because one of the companies involved in the deal, at least, conducts a business in China or in a specific country. A more recent, uh, recent example also is the uh, proposed acquisition by Microsoft of uh, a company called, I think, Activision, which uh, for a long time, mm. uh, the UK was actually not inclined at all to uh, give its approval to the deal. So um, that's why approvals from uh, some countries end up being necessary for, you know, some of those deals. Mm -hmm. China, um, I think, you know, looks at this within the context, obviously, of the tech war between the U.S. and uh, and China, the uh, limits imposed on the uh, availability of certain high-end chips made outside China, especially U.S. and U.S. companies uh, to China. So if you have the power to not approve a deal and it kills the deal, um, there, I don't think there's any necessity to actually come up with words. And sometimes you just, you know, keep mm. people guessing even longer. Uh, and eventually at some point in time, people get tired. Well, why is, uh, that's what I'm, I'm curious. I, you don't really see other countries doing this. I mean, sometimes they announce, you know, they're delaying a decision. Yeah. Uh, they need nine, you know, in the U.S., they always say, like, we need 90 more days or whatever. I mean, mm. China, this this kind of behavior seems strange. Why not just say no? And then, and then you know, even if you say no, and I'm not going to give you a reason, at least it'll be definitive. Why, why, why this sort of, you know, passive aggressive 
behavior. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is probably a M&A approval process with Chinese characteristics. Um, the, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes, sometimes you send a stronger message uh, by refusing to do something and not saying it and just getting people hanging on and, and being dragged around and so on. You express, I think, a, I don't know, a higher level of displeasure or mm. who knows. Um, <laughs> so that's what you know, you get into, you get into the psychology of, of um, you know, uh, global business and commerce and political um, relationships. Okay. All right. Well, this happens in other areas too, where China, they never actually say no, they just never say yes. Right. But um, all that that said, uh, moving on, you, you sort of referred to this, but a, a lot of people are saying, you know, this story is the latest extension of the U.S.-China chip wars. Um, I wanted to ask, do you personally agree? And also, you know, from broader perspective, what are the implications for, you know, global M&A in the future? Is, is China going to kill every single deal where it can, I guess, the you know, maybe related to an American company or they, they seem to have it out now, you know, for the Dutch are doing this and, and so are the Japanese, uh, you know, what's, what's going to happen here? It's pretty interesting. I think when you look at it on a kind of macro geopolitical basis, because um, on one hand you have China who uh, is really pursuing a strategy of uh, self-sufficiency uh, in a lot of uh, economic sectors um, and therefore you can you know expect that there is less of a need uh, going forward uh, for Chinese companies to acquire foreign companies especially when uh, increasingly at least on uh, the Western side, there's a great reluctance to let Chinese companies buy, you know, American or European companies in certain sectors. So, you know, to me, it looks a bit more like um, the Chinese companies will be less uh, in asking approvals from the rest of the world for M&A transactions, whereas um, because of the importance of the Chinese market to uh, global companies, to U.S. companies, European companies, and so on, more and more of them are going to be caught into a situation where they need approval for deals from the China side. And um, I don't know, mm. uh, you know, maybe somebody uh, at the level of the Chinese government, Communist Party, um, has determined that uh, this is a rather nice position of strength for China to be in um, and uh, take somewhat advantage of it. So you think uh, you think China's going to start doing this more? And, and I wouldn't be surprised. You think they might do it outside the chip, chip sector or they're going to sort of keep it focused in the area where they're unhappy? Well, number first of all, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened more often. Uh, number two, I think that uh, they would probably do that uh, more uh, when it comes to sectors where they feel they are being, um, you know, unfairly treated mm -hmm. uh, by the by the, the Western world at least. 
but um, you know at some point in time they could decide to expand that to some other sectors just to express their displeasure mm-hmm. about whatever the rest of the world or the western world is is doing to china mm-hmm. okay let's move on uh next we're gonna look at a, a more fun subject a more fun and bubbly topic of bubble tea ah and in this case we're looking at the the opening of a flagship store in london by the company called Tea. uh these guys are considered a pioneer in making this traditional drink a truly premium experience. Uh, Haiti's London opening was almost too successful. It attracted huge crowds that lined up at the company's first European store on the famous Shaftesbury Avenue, hoping to get a taste of their famous brews that combine traditional tea with fruity flavors, tapioca bubbles, and cheese foam. So I'm sure you're a big fan of uh, Haiti, uh, Rene. Um, not they're actually quite not my cup of tea. No, no. Ah, <laughs> but no puns intended. I said they were quite late coming to Europe, and and uh, you know people who follow this stuff know a lot of their rivals have actually entered both Europe and the U.S. for quite some time, mm-hmm. uh, and yet they were able to generate quite a crowd thanks in part to their strong use of social media. So uh, can you tell us just from a broader perspective, what's the attraction of bubble tea to Westerners? And do you think they really can sustain this level of interest having come so late to this tea party? Uh-huh. I um, I don't know. I don't know uh, about the answer uh, to question <laughs> one or question two. Um, the, here's here's uh, what, I, what I think is, is happening. Number one, um, New Kid on the Block. Um, it is a brand. They're very savvy. Bubble tea is sweet. It's a sweet drink. Um, so I am not surprised that you would have in London or other part of, of the West and in the US as well, actually. And I've seen it in the US. You know, Western, even Western uh, consumers, Caucasians, uh, taken to the drink because it, it's a sweet drink. It's something relatively novel. You've got all kinds of stuff in the drink that usually falls to the bottom and you can munch on and so on. So it's, um, I, I think it, it's curiosity uh, to some extent. It's, it's uh, the sweetness of it, uh, especially compared to coffee, for instance. And, and, you know, I mean, there are lots of people in the Western world that have a sweet tooth. So, um, yeah, I'm not surprised. Now, you know, whether it, it's going to last or not, I don't know. Other than in England, there is not really a very strong tea culture uh, in the West. So at some point in time, if you look beyond the Asian populations or Asian people who live in the US, in in Europe, in the UK, and so on. I'm not too sure how much of following bubble tea in general, not just Haiti, will will actually retain. Uh, time will tell. You know, when mm. I think when Starbucks, I remember when Starbucks started in, in China, you know, I remember going to, um, to Beijing back in those days, and there were, I think, three Starbucks in the whole city. And people were like, you know, it's never really going to take off. 
and, and hold on because Chinese don't have a culture of drinking coffee. Mm. And now you have not only Starbucks, but you have Luckin Coffee and you have some other local brands as well. Yeah. So I don't know. It it might. I, I really don't have a sense for it. I mean, I've, I've had it. I don't like it. It's too sweet for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, time will tell. Okay. All right. Well, shifting gears a little bit, but on the same topic, on, on a more serious note, some people saw the opening of this new store in London as a signal that Haiti might revive its stalled plans for a Hong Kong IPO. And despite the huge popularity of bubble tea, only one major company uh, called Nayuki has floated shares so far, uh, though many of its rivals are reportedly lining up to make similar listings. Nayuki hasn't exactly done too well, which is perhaps why some of the others are waiting. So what are the pros and cons to these companies from an investor perspective? Well, I think it's, it's you know, somewhat similar at, at the, the macro level, looking at consumption with uh, just about anything else. And, uh, and it is where is, uh, where is the Chinese mostly consumer headed? Um, what's, what's going on? Uh, what are they spending on? How much are they spending? What is the uh, you know uh, level of confidence in in the future of the economy and so on? These are all the things that are obviously guiding people in in consumers in the decisions that they make in terms of uh, what they buy, what they consume, and all of that. And we all know that uh, there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of uh, positive uh, news across the board in the consumer section uh, sector in China, other than you know for mm-hmm. basic staples and so on. Now the interesting mm-hmm. the interesting thing though about uh, bubble tea in general and I guess by default Haiti is that comparatively speaking in China it is relatively cheap. Um, compared to how much you actually have to pay in the U.S. for it, I don't know about Europe, but it's it, it's cheap enough that it has helped make it a social drink, basically, mm-hmm. with friends consuming it together, spending time together, a little bit like some people go to Starbucks and sit down for half yeah. the day and chat and go <laughs> on social media That's or their a... laptops or whatever. So um, right. it's, once again, I think it's cheap enough. In China, it's actually cheaper than a cup of coffee at Starbucks. So yeah, um, mm. but, but generally speaking, if you look at investors right now and their appetite for Chinese stocks, uh, there's not a lot of it right now. And you need, uh, you know, if you're going to be listed in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong investor is not capable of carrying um, a lot of power in terms of investing in Chinese stocks. You know, when, when right. you talk to local investors in Hong Kong, they tell you that they understand China better than anybody in the West ever, ever will. And I think that for some of them, it's true. For some of them, I think it's just wishful thinking. Mm. Uh, in the rest of the of the world right now, global investors are not very interested in investing in Chinese stocks. I mean, I talk to quite a number of them on a regular basis in the U.S. at least. And, uh, and, and there's just not much appetite. Everybody's trying to figure out 
what's going on with the economy, where it's headed, what will happen, what will the government do in terms of stimulus or not, and the size of the stimulus and so on, um, you know, unemployment, um, how, what's happening with the private sector and all of that. And, uh, you know, the U.S. investors that I'm talking to are just like, we don't know. We're trying to figure it out. We mm. need clearer signals or whatever before we feel comfortable throwing, you know, a fair amount of money again at, at that market. Yeah, I guess at least one thing they don't have to worry about is sanctions. I can't see uh, <laughs> can't see bubble tea companies uh, getting getting uh, sanctioned right. by the U.S. or any other. Yeah, country. sure. One one small point. Right. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thanks everybody for listening this week. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and rate us and share us on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to join us again next week for another edition of China Inc. when we'll look once more at the latest trending China business topics. Hope to see you all then. Goodbye for now. Thank you all.